Well, one time when I was in seminary, <clears throat> our professor opened up class in a rather unusual way. He asked us a kind of provocative question. He said, can people change? Do you think that people can change? He left it at that, no explanation, no caveats, and he just left it open for discussion. Well, people came out on both sides of the issue. Yes, I think they can, or no, I don't think they can. And they had different reasons. But he left us that week without a specific answer. He wanted us to think about it throughout the week and deliberate and really dive into scripture and see what it said. The next time that we met, he explained to us that if we do not believe that people can change, then Christian education, or in other words, evangelism and discipleship, they're moot points, meaning they're useless. They don't have any value. But if it's true that people really can change, if they can become new and different and more like Jesus, then the sky is the limit with ministry. It was such a wise point for him to make with us young seminarians as we set about to learn how to do this thing called ministry. So I'll, I'll ask you, what do you think? Can people change? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. <clears throat> some of you may have seen someone go through a huge transformation. Sometimes it can be hard to believe. Maybe they've battled addiction. Uh, maybe they were raised in a very difficult family of origin. Sometimes we wonder, have they really changed? Or are they just playing a part? You want to believe them, but history has a way of repeating itself and old habits are very difficult to break. How can you really know if change is real? Well, last week, we saw Paul have a life-changing encounter with Jesus in the first part of Acts chapter 9. Paul was described to us in that chapter as a man who breathes threats and murder. How would you like to be described that way? Threats and murder were as natural to Paul as breathing. And yet, we see a magnificent, miraculous change happen. He encounters the risen Christ on the road in all of his glory and beauty, and it's on the heels of that encounter and his consequent conversation with Ananias that we're going to pick up our reading today. We'll start in... The book of Acts, if you don't have your Bible open, go ahead and grab it. The book of Acts, chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 19. Let's read this together. For some days he, being Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He, Jesus, is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And he said, they said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem or for all those who called upon the name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, we don't know how long Paul was with the disciples in Damascus. 
And that's really not the point. The phrase that's translated for some days is purposely vague because it wasn't a matter of how long he spent with the disciples. It was the fact that he consciously, purposely spent time with the disciples. The newly converted Apostle Paul, who wasn't yet an apostle, no matter how gifted and talented and eloquent and passionate he was, he needed Christian community. God had work to do inside of Paul. Natalie Thomas Runyon says it this way, it's a selfie world in a selfless kingdom, and that is a war all its own. It's a selfie world in a selfless kingdom. Paul had to do battle with everything inside of himself, even the praise and encouragement that he got from others that told him, hey, you can go it alone. You're good. What you have, your gifting, your experience, your wisdom, that's enough. But that's not true. It's never enough because God did not design us that way. God built us to live in community, just like he does. Paul needed the sanctification that the body of Christ would work out in him. He needed his own iron to be sharpened by others. He needed to have those sharp edges softened. He needed to learn from those who had walked with Jesus and been taught by him. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that Paul, on the heels of his conversion, pulls a sharp U-turn. Rather than persecuting all the Christians, he starts to go to the synagogues, to his very own fellow Jews, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. This man, who had been a vicious and celebrated persecutor of Christians, now has not only become one, but he's trying to convince his fellow Jews to do the same. If that's not a transformation, I don't know what is. Bold as brass, he goes into every synagogue he can find. He wants to tell every Jewish person about the life-changing power of Jesus. He's literally compelled by the grace of Christ to take the gospel to those from his former life. He knows that they will struggle to believe not just the message, but also the messenger. And yet he goes anyway. Now, how many times, if we're being honest, have you ever used the excuse, they'll never listen to me, or I'll never be able to say anything to change his mind, or she's never going to believe that I've really changed? What fears and excuses are preventing you from sharing the life changing message of Jesus with those around you. Throughout this story, we continually see God equipping Paul. God shocks and confuses and surprises people with the change that he has done in Paul's life. Paul's words are now so powerful that they leave people without an argument or rebuttal. Paul is exhibit A, that the power behind our evangelism is not in practice or in certain words or tactics or techniques. The power behind our evangelism is the living Christ who is indwelling us, who is changing us 
from the inside out. If we have the power of the living Christ in us, what do we have to be afraid of? Paul might have been overzealous, he might have been a little foolhardy, and he might have been a little prideful, but he was continually being strengthened by his Savior. In verse 22, we read, but Paul increased all the more in strength. Even as he was doing the work of God on the outside, he was being transformed by God on the inside. It's that same work that Paul's going to write about later in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says this, And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed into the same image, that being the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. That's chapter 3, verse 18. As we see Paul undergo this process of change, as we see him start to become more and more like Jesus, we also see him experiencing some early ministry success. And so we're left to wonder, what's going to happen? Is he going to get an inflated ego? Is he going to be just another cautionary tale of a leader who burns out? Well, let's find out. Grab your Bible if you still have it. We're going to pick up again in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So we reach a crossroads here. Paul has officially crossed the point of no return. It's clear to everyone, including the Jewish people, that Paul's conversion is real, and he is considered dangerous. His message is beginning to gain some real traction with the Jewish people, and that is scary to their leaders. He poses a threat to 21st century Judaism. As Paul is becoming more like Jesus, he also finds himself receiving the same kind of treatment as Jesus. His life is in real danger. And so his disciples, did you catch that, that he has his own disciples now? His disciples devise a plan to get him out of town safely. They put him in some kind of large basket, which must have been, must have been pretty amusing to behold, but they put him in some kind of large basket and they use ropes to lower him down over the town wall. As I was reading this part, of course, I was giggling a little bit because it's funny and silly, but I was also reminded of two Old Testament stories. The first is found in Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh is seeing the Jews now become increasingly powerful and numerous in the land of Egypt. He's feeling threatened, and so he orders every male baby to be killed. Moses' mother saves him, though, by putting him in a, a basket and putting him in the river and sending him upriver, where he's discovered 
adopted and protected by Pharaoh's daughter. So feelings of jealousy, feeling threatened, protection, a basket. Do you hear some similarities? The second story is found in Joshua chapter 2. So Joshua has been commanded to take the Israelites into the promised land. He sends some spies to Jericho to see if they can, in fact, take the land. They are met by a prostitute named Rahab. When the people of Jericho find out that they're there, they come after them to kill them. So Rahab takes them in and hides them. The way that she helps them escape is to lower them down by ropes from the window of her home, which was part of the city wall. Again, we have ropes, people hunting someone down, lowering them across the city wall. You hear some similarities? So what's the point? These are two crucial Old Testament stories where a person of God is saved from imminent harm so that they can lead God's people into God's plan. Matthew Henry notes that where God gives great grace, he commonly exercises it with great trials. What that means is that where God gives us great grace, he also pulls us back by giving us trials. God is using this difficult circumstance to both confirm his call on Paul's life as well as to prepare him for that call. God knew that Paul would have a tendency toward pride, that it would be easy for him to rely on his own knowledge, experience, and pedigree. Remember, he calls himself the Jew of all Jews. You know, he's a prideful man. He knew that he would be tempted to rely on those things instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. God wanted to protect Paul, even from himself. One of my former pastors once told me that God uses suffering in our lives to do three things. One, to help us understand and appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus more. Two, to make us more like Jesus. And three, to increase our empathy and compassion towards others. God was preparing Paul to be a better pastor, a better missionary, a better friend, and even a better disciple. This was the beginning of Jesus fulfilling the words that he had spoken through Ananias when he said, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul would surely suffer for the sake of the gospel, but he would also know the precious promise of God that he wrote about later in the Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The grace of God would prove gloriously sufficient for Paul. Okay, we're going to dive back into the third and last part of our scripture here. Grab your Bible if you don't have it out. We're in chapter 9, and we're picking up at verse 28. So he, Paul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Have you ever yelled at someone in traffic and then shortly afterward you made a similar mistake and had someone yell at you in turn? Or maybe, as a parent, you find yourself repeating a phrase that you heard in childhood and say, oh no, I've become my mom and I've become my dad. Well, that phrase rings true, right? What goes around comes around. And in this passage, we see Paul's actions from his past catching up with him. His rush to judgment and condemnation of Christians is coming back his way as he is now experiencing that same rush to judgment from the Christians in Jerusalem. They think that his claim to be a Christian cannot possibly be real. The Hellenists that are referred to in this passage were a group of Jews who had embraced Greek philosophy, Greek culture, and Greek language. And they had integrated them with their Jewish and now Jewish Christian faith. In verse 29, we read that Paul spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now, in the original Greek, the word that we translate as disputed is sudzeteo. I'm going to have you say that with me, okay? Sudzeteo. Good job. Some common definitions of this word are to reason together, to discuss, or to investigate jointly. It's important to give proper context for the word because there wasn't a debate happening here. Paul didn't go into this to have a knockdown, drag out battle with his enemies. It was intended to be a lively discussion between brothers. We don't know where things took a left turn, but at some point, this lively debate turned deadly. Whether the Hellenist overreacted to Paul or he wasn't wise and sensitive, winsome in his delivery, we don't know. But one thing we do know is this. The disciples needed to get Paul out of there, and they needed to get him out quickly. So we see that young baby Christian Paul, he's no picnic. He's brash. He's probably a little bit of a smarty pants, and he knows all the right answers. Surely that's never been any of you. I have to confess that, regrettably, that has been me before. (laughs) Have you ever, and again, this is just purely theoretical, right? This would never happen to you. But have you ever seen someone share the truth, a truth from the Bible, with maybe a neighbor or coworker or friend? And, And what they said was right, but they did it in such an ugly way that the hearer didn't want to have anything to do with Christ no matter how wise or persuasive or right they were. Dr. Phil calls these people right fighters. They're more concerned with being right than having a good relationship with others. Well, that can be true of sharing our faith as well. Sometimes we can say all of the right things, but we fail to win others to Christ because we don't demonstrate the love and compassion and humility of Jesus. Our theology is super important, but if it doesn't reflect the character of God as revealed in the scriptures, 
then maybe it's gotten off track. Okay, unless, I, I don't want you to leave discouraged. You know, if you've had one of those instances where you maybe, you know, were a little off-putting, I don't want you to leave discouraged. And so I want to share with you another instance about Paul. So we see him again addressing this same Greek culture and Greek philosophy later in the book of Acts in chapter 17. Well, Paul has learned a few things by then. He's been humbled. He's been shaped by the gospel. He's been chastened by his fellow disciples. And he gives a very different gospel presentation. If you have time this afternoon or this week, I'd encourage you to go read the whole chapter. But for our purposes, we're just going to skip to the results, which are found in verses 32 through 34. Now, when they heard, that the re- heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what do you think? Can people change? Scripture tells us the answer is a resounding yes. If Paul can be changed by God, if he can become more gentle and winsome and kind and humble, then surely I can too, and so can you. We can grow in our Christ-likeness as well as our ability to share the gospel in a winsome and persuasive manner. We, we accomplish this change by spending time with other believers in real life-on-life relationships, just like Paul did. We change by encountering Jesus face-to-face, just like Paul did. And we change by knowing and experiencing the lavish grace of God, just like Paul did. So where does Jesus need to change you? both for your own good and for his eternal glory. We're going to sing a a song. Well, actually, this may not be the same hymn. But in the first service, we sang, I Surrender All. And I just want the words of that um, first verse just to echo in your life this week. They could even be a prayer that you pray. And they say this, All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. May that be true for you this week. Amen. All right, friends. Well, I just pray for you um, as we leave from here that that grace that transformed Paul would do the same work in you, that his Holy Spirit would be changing you from one degree of glory to another, that you may look more like him and represent him better in this world. May you go in his peace. Amen.